Hey, good morning. Great to be with you guys. If you don't have a Bible, make sure to grab one. Um, we're going to be studying Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, I guess via Timothy. 1 Timothy 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. But I just want you to know that I will be discussing other aspects of Scripture. So it is helpful to have a Bible so that you can see what I am referring to um, throughout. It's a short um, reading of the text. Um, and Lord willing, a short sermon. But I make no promises. So, <laughs> I don't want to get your hopes up. But as far as I can tell, it will be a shorter one. So, Amen. Thanks be to God for that, right? For those of you that aren't aware, we're, we are um, working through the letter to Timothy because it is a very important book for the establishment of a church. And as our church is... New, it's not a very old church. It's vitally important that we understand how Paul, the Apostle Paul, wanted the church to be established at its infancy. And so as a church, in, our, in its infancy, we can learn a lot from this letter and how we are to be about church. And so we are making our way through this. And um, I've titled these next few sermons, Family Rules. Family Rules. So this is Family Rules Part 1. So let me read God's Word, starting 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 and going through 10. Paul says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. One of the greatest fears of my childhood was hearing the sound of my dad's voice on a Saturday morning calling out to me to join him in the yard to pick weeds. I hated picking weeds. First off, you have to understand that I grew up in South Florida. South Florida, 10 months out of the year, is very hot, and very humid, which means that the moment you walked outside, you were drenched in sweat. Now you have to know this a little bit about me, and I'm, I'm letting you into my, I don't like to be really sweaty, and I don't like to be really dirty. So picking weeds in the hot humidity of Florida was not my favorite thing to do. Then if I'm being honest, one of the reasons, if not the primary reason why I hated picking weeds is that it kept me from doing things that I enjoy most. Basketball, hockey, video games, playing with the friends in the neighborhood, simply you name it. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And the weed picking kept me from doing what I wanted to do. But of course, the other aspect of picking weeds is that I had to get my hands in the dirt. And from time to time, when you stick your hands in the dirt or stick your hands in bushes, you make yourself vulnerable to things that sting, like bugs, spiders, and bees. I hate spiders. I hate bees. I hate snakes. Okay? I was born in the city. I am not a country boy. And I vividly remember sticking my hands in one of those bushes and getting stunned by something. I don't know what it was. All I know is I hated every moment of it. Picking weeds was the worst. But picking weeds was a family rule. It's an almost universal reality for families that there are rules. 
Rules are important in families because it provides the structure and the order that is necessary for human flourishing. Now to the kids in the audience, I know that is not something that gets you excited. Oh, I really want to flourish. Yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. But as we grow older, we understand that flourishing and being competent adults is a very important thing. And the rules are a part of that. Now consider a family without rules. Consider the children of this family. The kids get to eat what they want. They get to do what they want. Say what they want. Now what type of children would these children be? Let's hypothetically say you get asked to babysit that children. What is your experience with these children? Horrible. <laughs> it is absolutely horrible. I mean, rowdy children are dreadful children. And the rules bring them to a place where they are delightful. See, rules help promote human flourishing. Now, what I find fascinating about this relationship between family rules and then the passage of Scripture which we read today is this. If we jump ahead, if we were to read Paul's letter, which is intended to be read in one continuous manner, so it's not like we're just looking at 8 verses 8, 9, and 10. 8, 9, and 10 find itself in the midst of a logical flow of Paul. And if you get to the end of this particular logical point that Paul is making, you will come to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. In Chapter 3, and you can just, that's why I say have a Bible right there. Paul ends up telling Timothy this. He says this, I am writing these things to you, that is the things that preceded what, is, what he's saying right here, so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. In these verses, what Paul is doing is he's equating the church of God to the family of God. And because of this, he wants Timothy to implement the family rules in the life of the church. But rules are rarely a popular subject in the church. In fact, much like children who despise rules like picking weeds, those in the church can come to hate the family rules, not understanding their purpose and their place. Rules seem restrictive, difficult, out of touch with reality. And for that reason, we do almost everything in our power to rid ourselves of them. Sometimes we're ignorant of them, but for the most part, we push and strive to push the rules to the side so that we in the church can continue to live as we think is best. Ultimately, the family rules infringe on our perceived autonomy and it ends up hurting us. We end up choosing ourselves over God and we become like those children who are rowdy and, and rambunctious. Do we realize what we do to ourselves? Do we realize what happens to us when we reject the very rules that God has given to the church that we are to obey? Do we realize the sort of impact that this has not only on ourselves, but our neighbors and on the church itself. If we understand that rules promote flourishing, what sort of flourishing are we missing out on by rejecting the very rules of God?
that He has given to us. I think we are and can be a church like dreadful children. But I hope that this is not the case for our church. It is my hope and my prayer that our church would flourish. And for it to flourish, we have to lean into the very rules that God has given to us for that flourishing. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at rules. Very exciting. I know you're excited about this stuff. I know. But this morning, we're going to look at three rules. There are two very explicit rules that we're going to look at, and then a third that is implicit. The first two explicit rules is this. One, we should pray. Two, we should dress appropriately. And three, we should remember whose we are. We should pray, we should dress appropriately, and we should remember whose we are. So let's look at these rules that we might flourish. Rule number one, we should pray. Of course, you can see that the first rule that Paul commands Timothy to implement is that men should pray. He says this in verse 8, saying, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. In this short statement, Paul doesn't make a general request to mankind to pray. In fact, he makes a specific request for the men to pray. Men, pray in all places with holy hands lifted up without anger or quarreling. What indeed is Paul getting at with this specific focus of the men and this specific rule? Well, One of the first clues that we get to answering this question is that there are specific ways that men should pray. Paul wants men to pray with holy hands lifted up without anger and quarreling. And indeed, this seems like a rather strange request. In fact, very strange. In all the years of being a Christian and a pastor, I have rarely, if ever, heard a prayer that is filled with anger and quarreling. Think for yourself of moments in your life when you've thought of prayers or someone praying with great anger. I mean, maybe you can. But I find it to be very... Uh, atypical in the church. So what do we make of this? One thing we must remember when we read this verse is that this rule was written to a specific person, Timothy, who pastored in a specific place, Ephesus, during a specific period of time, roughly A.D. 65. Because of that, and in lieu of these specific instructions, it's likely that Timothy, as the pastor of the church in Ephesus, was encountering men who were praying with anger and quarreling. Thus, they were not lifting their hands in a holy way, but in an unholy way. Applying this to our context in here in Little Rock, thousands of years after this was written, I find it hard to uh, apply these particular words to our context. You are not praying out of anger and quarreling. This is not the problem of central hope. Thanks be to God. But I think that there's a greater, a greater rule in this particular rule that we must all lean into. Not just men, but both men and women. And that is that we should pray in all places. Indeed, the greater concern that I have as a pastor of this church is that simply we are not praying. Here's where I want to take Paul's rule and apply it to us. Prayer is a vitally important aspect of the Christian faith. 
In an earlier letter that he wrote to to this same church in Ephesus, the letter of Ephesians, Paul gave this famous analogy of putting on the armor of God in light of the spiritual warfare that we all participate in. This is a warfare not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And as he describes this armor of God that we've been given, he concludes it by saying this, Put on the helmet of salvation. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And do you know what he says to do? Pray. The very offensive aspect of prayer is the very thing that we are called to do as Christians. Prayer is an offensive tactic against the spiritual forces that are at play in the life of all Christians. And we as a people must remember that prayer is a powerful tool that God has given to us to do God's work. We should pray. We should be a people who are defined by prayer. Yet so often, we rely on ourselves. We rely on our gifts and our strengths to do God's work. Prayer is the opposite. It is humbly relying upon God. Humbling yourself and recognizing that God Himself will fight for you. So let us pray. Let us pray in the midst of this great battle. If we don't, we're like a soldier in combat who has a weapon and doesn't use it. There's a story, I guess it's a story, and it's probably Hollywood, but if you've ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, there's a scene in the movie Saving Private Ryan um, where there's a soldier named Timothy Upham. And he walks into this house and he encounters one of his friends, Stanley Mellish, in hand-to-hand combat with a German SS soldier. And it's an intense combat. I mean, it's hard to watch this scene because this German soldier is in the process of plunging a knife into Stanley Mellish's heart. And Upham is hearing this take place in the floor above him. He has every opportunity to rush upstairs and to save his friend. But he lets the German soldier kill his friend. And in the movie, you see Upham cowering on the stairs as this German soldier is walking by him. The German soldier doesn't do anything to him. He just walks by him, spiteful of this soldier who would not engage in conflict. And he walks away. Christians who don't pray are like Upham. You have power, a weapon, to fight the enemy, to stop that which is happening. But when we don't pray, we're like cowards, like Upham and saving Private Ryan. Church, may we not be a people who don't pray. May we humble ourselves, depend on God for the great fight in our schools, our homes, our city, our country, and our work. We pray because it is a great tool in the fight against evil. For those of you that are curious and are still coming into, how do I pray? There are ways in which the Bible gives us um, tools that it gives us to pray. And a great place to learn how to pray is to learn from Jesus. He taught the disciples how to pray. And He gave them the Lord's Prayer. Many of us know this by heart. 
But many of us don't know that the Lord's Prayer is actually a pattern. Our Father in Heaven. When we stop and pray that, we're actually considering that God is our Father in Heaven. Hallowed be Your name. We stop and we praise God. You see, it's a pattern. So the Lord's Prayer is not just something that we just ritually do, but it is a pattern from which we can learn how to pray. Then we have the Psalms. You realize that the book of Psalms in your Bible is a prayer book. You want to learn how to pray? Pray the Psalms. Read it. Open it. There's 150 of them. And it captures a variation of types of prayers. Thanksgiving, mourning, grieving, interceding. It's beautiful. Prayer is a part of our life as a church. And we must not only do it, but learn to do it. So family rule number one, we should pray. Family rule number two, we should dress appropriately. Starting in verse 9, you see the second rule that Paul commands Timothy to implement in the church. And that is in particularly relationship, or in relation to the women. Where he says women should likewise adorn themselves in respectable apparel, apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. So in this rule, Paul is addressing the women of the church of Ephesus and what they should wear. And some of them, what they were wearing was very disrespectful, garish, and improper and provocative. This sort of dress, Paul says, should not be something that women of the church of Jesus should wear. But we must remember that much like the first rule, this is a rule that must be seen in light of the context from which Paul writes this letter to a specific person in a specific place at a specific time. So one of the things about the city of Ephesus, and I think this is going to help us make light of what he says, that women should not braid their hair, wear gold, or wear pearls, is that in the city of Ephesus, around this time, there was a notable landmark in the heart of the city. It was called the Temple of Artemis. For those of you that don't know, the Temple of Artemis is known as one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple dedicated to the goddess of Artemis, which was a play on the goddess of Diana, which was a Greek god. And in this temple, one of the practices that was often done was that there were prostitutes who would then go out into the city at night wearing their hair in a certain way with braids, wearing gold and pearls. And the people of the city would meet these prostitutes, partake in some of the activities associated with these prostitutes as a way of meriting favor from the goddess of Artemis. And so Paul is dealing with people who are coming out of this practice. And he hears from some way that there are women in the church that are dressing this way. Doesn't it make sense for, for Paul to say, don't dress like the prostitutes the temple of Artemis? Because if you're doing that, you're getting yourself confused with a different religion. The church is not to be associated with the gods of the world. It is a different god. And so this is how we can make sense of gold and pearls and braided hair. 
I mean, I'm not gonna, we're not going to put someone at the front door and say, oh, take that braid out. That's terrible. Get those gold jerks. But no, that's not what Paul is saying. I think for us, if Paul were here, and he were to address us of what he's really getting at, the heart of what he's trying to tell the church to do, I think he would say, we need to be cautious and we need to address appropriately, particularly the women. Now, I do say this with some hesitancy. I am a man. Now, I know the temptations of wearing certain things. I know the outward appearance for a man is is a reality. So, indeed, this can apply to men. But the temptation of wearing certain things is far greater for a woman than it is for a man. I don't know why that is. But if you were to look at how men spend time shopping, it's like, you know, we're just in, we're out, we get what we want, and we leave. We don't make a day of shopping. So, for example, in my family, when I go and spend time with my in-laws, the guys get a day to go play golf, and what do the girls get a day to go do? Shop. The outward appearance, it's just, I'm not trying, I mean, it's just the way things are. And one of the things I think in terms of our culture and the way that our dress and how Paul can address us is this. What do we value? Do we value the outward appearance or do we value the inward appearance of our lives? Because what Paul commends the women to do is to adorn themselves with godliness, with good works. And it seems, and it's not critical of looking nice and being nice and and, and wearing things like that, but it seems that Paul is saying, here's what I want you to value, women, more than anything. Godliness and good works. What's on the inside that matters. As humans, we tend to value the outside more than the inside. But the reality of God is that He values the inside far more than He values the external the outside. The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 3, you can go there if you'd like. I'm going to read it. 1 Peter 3, I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. But listen to what Peter says in a different context. He says this, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Let us value the internal far more than we value the external. I want to commend sincerely um, the women in this church. Because I don't think, I mean, and you, you look at your own heart, I don't know what's in your, in your own heart. But in many ways, the women of this church, you follow this rule very well. And you are to be commended. Way to go. But we must remember that God far, far more values the internal than the external. Let us be about good works and how we care for those in our midst. Not seeking the attention of others, but seeking to draw people's attention to God. So rule number one, we should pray. Rule number two, we should dress appropriately. Rule number three, 
we should remember whose we are. Like I said earlier on, the first two rules are very explicit. Pray and dress appropriately. But this third rule, you might say, isn't found in the text. And it isn't. It's not explicitly there. But I'm telling you that it is implicitly there. And I want to show you how that is. You see, this is all in light of being a part of the family of God. We often think that to be in the family of God, we must obey the rules. But this is not the reality of this particular text. The reality of this text is that we obey because we already are the family of God. We tend to think, as much as I did when I was younger, especially in relation to my relationship with God, that I had to obey the rules to be worthy of being a part of the family of God. But that is not the case. The rules come because we are in the family of God. And so rule number three, we need to remember whose we are. We are the children of the living God who were bought with the blood of Christ, ransomed from our sin. Do you know what Paul wrote to this same church in his letter to the Ephesians? It's in fact one of the most popular verses in all of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-6. through six. I want you to listen to the very words that Paul wrote to these same people. Listen to what he says. And you were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Do you hear that? Family language. Sons of disobedience. And he continues, verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Once again, family language. But verse 4 of chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the, book, letter to the church in Ephesians is probably one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. He says this, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying this, you do not merit your family. Your family is given to you. And as Christians, we come into the family by grace. And we must see the rules that He's given to us in light of the grace. Because if we don't see the rules in the light of the grace, then we're going to have a very difficult time with those rules. When we understand the great mercy and grace given to us through Christ, we start to see... Maybe God knows what He's doing. Maybe God knows how I can flourish as a human being. 
Benjamin, my son, participated in his school production of Peter Pan this weekend. And it was a fun play. It won't be making its way to Broadway. I'll just tell you that. But I was reminded in the story of Peter Pan when Wendy ends up going to Neverland and encounters the Lost Boys. Do you remember the Lost Boys? They're a bunch of hoodlums, right? But when they get Wendy, do you remember what they call her? They call her our mother. And they start to change in light of the fact that they have a mother now. And they begin to learn the rules of what it's like to be a respectable individual child. And they learn what it's like to properly live. Because before, before they had a mother, they were rambunctious, lost boys. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. We have a father. We have a father who loves us. We, don't, we didn't earn it, deserve it. He comes to us by his grace. And he says, there's a certain way that you act. We pray. We fight Satan in prayer. We dress respectable. We don't tie ourselves any longer to the gods of this world. We tie ourselves to God. And we do it in a respectable manner. Valuing the inside more than the outside. This is how we act. Always in light of whose we are. So friends, let us, rule number three, remember whose we are. Because rules number one will not take place and will not cause flourishing unless we do. You know what I did when I was younger? On those Saturday mornings when my dad called me downstairs to pick weeds? I picked the weeds. I didn't always understand why I was picking the weeds. And again, I hated it. But you know what? I trusted Him. And I trusted Him because my dad provided for me. He loved me. And He was present in my life. I know, granted, I'm not the most flourishing of adults. I get it. I'm not trying to boast as if I got it all figured out. But I would be a different person. I would be a very different person if my dad had not put those rules in my, my family in a very loving and gracious way. I thank God that He gave me a father who said, it's time to pick weeds. You should be thankful too. You have a loving father who says, these are the family rules. And these family rules will indeed bring about a flourishing. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, we do want to flourish. We do want to be people who represent You well, who become more Christ-like, who become less self-centered and more loving. But of course, we can't do this on our own strength. We're too prone to our own way, our own will. And so we must remember whose we are. And so I ask, especially as we prepare our hearts and our minds to come to Your table, the Lord's table, would you welcome us as family members to come, that we come because of Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, and the grace that He gives us in welcoming us, lost boys, lost children. Would you remind us of that great sacrifice that we might indeed obey Your rules and find the flourishing that You promised to give. 